There had been abuse in my family, but it was mostly musical in nature. lover's lament crap. I want something peppy, something happy, something up-tempo. I want something snappy. Outcast, Usher, TLC, Mariah Carey, Kanye West, big names, big personalities, all linked by one man, L.A. Reid. I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Cott. We get the inside scoop on the record industry from producer and CEO L.A. Reid. And then it's Jim's turn to talk about a track he can't live without. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. This is Sound Opinions, and later in the show, Greg, we are going to talk to music industry lifer L.A. Reid, not about all the juicy stories in his new book, but about a life spent in the music business on the major label level that we rarely deal with on this show. But still, the book has all these juicy inside superstar stories. I can't get over the one about him talking about hanging out with Michael Jackson, King of Prop, in Jackson's <laughs> private screening room with Jackson showing a blooper reel of Prince screwing up on stage and laughing at his rival. <laughs> We're going to hear from L.A. Reid later on in the show, but first we've got some music news. I was bruised and battered, I couldn't tell what I felt, I was unrecognizable to myself, I saw my reflection in a window and didn't know my own face, oh brother, are you gonna leave me wasting away the streets of Philadelphia? That is Bruce Springsteen with the song Streets of Philadelphia from the 1993 Jonathan Demme Tom Hanks movie Philadelphia, which addressed the AIDS crisis. Springsteen again in the news in a big way, speaking out against the Public Facilities Privacy and Security Act, otherwise known as the Bathroom Law in North Carolina, by canceling a major show in Greensboro Coliseum only days ahead of the date. The law he's referring to overturns local ordinances banning discrimination against gay and transgender people and dictates that they must use the bathroom that corresponds with the sex on their birth certificate. Springsteen, in a statement, says, I feel that this is a time for me and the band to show solidarity for those freedom fighters in North Carolina. Brian Adams has also canceled a show in the state of Mississippi in support of LGBT rights. Jimmy Buffett, who had a couple of shows scheduled in North Carolina, says he has doubts about whether he'll play in that state in the future, but he is actually going to go ahead with his two shows, saying that I don't want to let my fans down who have paid to see me in a couple of weeks. You know, Greg, I think it's one thing for big corporations or sports franchises to say we are not going to support the state of North Carolina, for example. But I think it's almost behooven upon artists to go there and raise consciousness. What if the boss had played that show? And then what if they had marched on the Capitol? What if the boss had done a free show the next day, acoustic, on the steps of the State House, and done what rock and roll does best, which is motivate people to fight? 
Well, I think he is motivating people to fight. I mean, he's putting his money where his mouth is. I mean, he's losing a lot of money by not playing that show. I mean, obviously his fans are also heavily invested in the show. Some of them are traveling from out of state to see it. But I think the point is that he is, in fact, got something at stake here. And I think in terms of the national media coverage, way more than it would have been had he made a few statements from the stage. No way. If he stood on stage and called out the legislators by name, if he stood on the steps of the Capitol, that would have gotten world well, I'll Frank- tell you what, you know I'm anti-Springsteen. Yeah. <laughs> Bruce wants to march in North Carolina. I will march with Bruce. Okay, let's go to North Carolina then. But what do you think, the listeners? Give us a call at 888-859-1800 and weigh in on this issue. Because I'm a picker, I'm a grinner, I'm a lover, and I'm a sinner. I play my music in the sun. I'm a smoker, I'm a midnight toker I sure don't want to hurt no That is a little bit of The Joker, a 70s hit, Greg, by Steve Miller, who was just inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Made a lot of news at the induction ceremony in Brooklyn. On stage, made two significant complaints. A lack of transparency in the nominating process, who gets into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and a very poor track record by the Hall of inducting women artists. Then backstage, he continued a tirade about problems with the hall. The whole process is unpleasant, he said, needs to be changed from top to bottom. It's really interesting to see these complaints continually being made, and the hall never gets much better. You know, the Rock Hall president, Joel Parisman, uh, defended the hall against some of Miller's accusations. He says, you know, over the past few years, we've inducted women basically every year. But the fact remains that the number of male inductees into the Hall of Fame far outnumbers the number of women represented in the Hall of Fame. And that notion of transparency, he claimed not to know exactly what Miller was talking about. But I think the voting process is this big mystery to the general public. Who decides who's getting on this ballot to be even voted upon? We don't have any insight into that process. And the same names keep getting brought up every year. And there's a lot of key names that are conspicuously absent every year in this process. You're listening to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRogatis. And that, it probably goes without saying, is TLC's 1994 mega hit, Waterfalls. If you were alive at all during this Mm. era, you probably heard that song somewhere. That song solidified the firing power of not just the Atlanta-based R&B group, but its Atlanta-based label, LaFace Records. And no, the la in LaFace doesn't mean the. It refers to the label co-founder, Antonio L.A. Reid. Now, along with songwriting and producing partner Babyface, Ellie helped to launch the careers of Tony Braxton, Outkast, and Usher. And he continued on this path, becoming the CEO of Arista, the chairman of Island Def Jam, and now the chairman and CEO of Epic Records. He's also recently written a new book called Sing to Me. You know, along the way, Greg, as his autobiography makes clear, he developed a rep as a person 
with one of those music industry golden ears, working with and discovering some of the biggest names in pop. Mariah Carey, Pink, Justin Bieber, Whitney Houston, and Jay-Z, that's only scratching the surface. Now, listeners to this show, Greg, know that we don't necessarily associate biggest with best, and we've got no love lost for the major label corporate bloated music industry. But L.A. was was game and willing to be candid and come on our show and indulge our questions about that world that we don't often get to look into. Yeah, he was, Jim, and we wanted to find out about his relationship with music first. He began as a drummer with this uh, R&B group, The Deal, in the 80s. That's where he met Babyface. And during our conversation, I asked L.A. Reid when he knew he could and should make a career out of music. Well, I never thought anything else. I mean, probably from maybe, I didn't know that it was a job or that it could be a job until maybe 14 years old. But from that point forward, yeah, I was pretty committed that this would be my life. In many ways, obviously it served me well, but there there are things that I wished I'd done differently because I took for granted that I would have success in music and I would have a life in, not even success, just a life in music. Mm. Uh, so, like high school, I could have done so much better, and it would have served me so well, you know. But uh, I was like, okay, I don't think I'm going to need that. I don't think I'm going to need that. I don't see how that fits into it. What I didn't envision that I, is that I'd be a record executive with P&L responsibilities and have to sit with a board and explain numbers, mm-hmm, right? right? I didn't factor that in at all. That's a far away from grooving yeah. on the drums. I, I, yeah. didn't, I didn't know that would be a part of it, so I could have prepared myself a little better. But there was a step in between, from musician to record producer. I think so many people, L.A., outside of the music, inside world, still don't understand what a producer does. Right. So how how is it that you come to be the guy kind of shepherding and overseeing recordings? And what do you do? As a producer, it was exactly that, overseeing the recordings, How do you come to be that guy? I came to it purely out of necessity. I spent time with Reggie Calloway, who produced my band, The Deal, our very first album, and Midnight Star, at the same time he was doing both of them. And I was fascinated with it. learned from watching Reggie and everything from little nuances like if the bass player's playing, if somebody's in the room and they're rocking too hard, the bass player will play to their rock instead Mm -hmm. of playing to the track. So he could be lean forward on the record or lean backward on the record or punching in words. Reggie would punch in words like like a syllable. He would just punch in a syllable to fix a word. Wow, that's fascinating. So that attention to detail. The detail. Mm. You know, we have to talk about the deal a little bit, I think. Uh, You know, your partnership with Kenny Babyface Edmonds really starts in that group. Right. And I remember L.A. during that era, this is the 80s, it was an interesting era because I remember talking to artists like Prince and uh, Lenny Kravitz, you know, Vernon Reed, people like that. The greats. And there was all this conversation about... African Americans playing rock music, like right. shouldn't you be doing R and B or something like that or hip hop? Right. And the deal I know was one of those groups. What category do we put them in? Ignoring the whole point that African Americans basically invented rock and roll. Right. Uh, so right. you know who else could own it but exactly. African Americans? You have always had this kind of widescreen view of what music could be. 
Right. And that, again, difficult position to be in when you're in the record industry, which wants to put you in a box. It's all about boxes. Yes. I, I, I ignored the boxes because I always felt that, you know, you, I can't be told what to love. And by the way, I haven't mastered this thing that I have not mastered it at all. The idea of, of the wide variety of music, you know, when I watch the Grammys and I watch Alabama Shakes, I'm thinking I still haven't gotten there yet, right? Because, I mean, I think they're, like, incredible. That girl. She's amazing. She's Brittany Howard. Really, Whoa. Brittany Howard. Really amazing. Growing up listening to music, um, I grew up in Cincinnati, and I listened to everything I loved or what other musicians told me to listen to. So I don't see music in those boxes, and I've been able to judge artists or, or, or at least sign talent just based on what I love. And I'm, I'm a pop guy. Even if it's R&B, it's very pop-leaning R&B for me. I tend to like melody. You know, I have some heavy metal bands on, on the label, you know, like, you know, I have Lamb of God, yep. mm-hmm. uh, Judas Priest. I have some screamers, and I dig it. But that's not my first love. My that's first, not your go-to. That's not my yeah. go-to. My go-to is a melody. Well, and the song is at the core of it. And yeah. you, when you and Babyface were, start, were starting to write together, you started getting having hits for people like Bobby Brown and The Whispers right. and people like that. When did you guys say, okay, this is a great song, we want to present it to this artist or this manager or this or this record label? Well, the truth is I got lucky in meeting Babyface. Before I met him, you know, I had my band, The Deal, and we were writing. It's exactly how, how why we met, I think, was because we were writing, and we were writing more funk records and what I'll call sort of black punk records. And then we met Babyface, and he had these lush chords and these beautiful harmonies. He was so accomplished when I met him that I really felt like I got lucky that I, I, I became best friends with, at that time, in my world, the greatest songwriter that could have possibly walked the earth to us. Mm-hmm. And it was just a feeling, though, listening to the songs that he wrote and then being asked to co-write with him. I filled in the blanks. That was my writing job. Was I would come up with lyrics, or I'd come up with a concept for a record, or I would come up with a beat, you know, um, and we would start adding things on top of it. But my, I, I was really filling in the blanks. People in the music industry, you've heard this a billion times. That person has ears. Yeah. What does that mean? And do you think you got them? <laughs> uh, I have passion. I love music. I think that I have ears. Yes. I don't think I have the world's greatest ears by mm-hmm. any stretch, but I think I have ears for what I like. 
but I'm upset that I don't have Alabama shakes. <laughs> you know, I, I'm upset yeah. that, you know, I, I, why didn't she knock on my door? If I'm supposed to be Mr. Ears, then why didn't she knock on my door? You it takes know? a lot of work. You, you got to go to South by Southwest and they're playing a really dingy club at two in the morning. You, I spent, I spent. Eight years at South by Southwest, and I missed that one. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I have an ear, but I have a very I, while it's broad, it's still kind of specific. I don't have the greatest hip hop ears, mm. but I love Kendrick Lamar. I loved Kanye West to, enough to pick his singles and yeah. and help him. You know, uh, I loved Outkast. I love Jay Z. I love a lot of them. But some of it I don't get. Some of the stuff that's not melody driven yeah. or it's not hook driven and it's just lyrical, I don't always get that. So everything comes back to the song for me. We, you said something great. We were chatting, Greg, before you got here about listening to stuff and how you know a great song sounds like a great song on a crappy little transistor radio. And you, know, and you said, L.A., you could put a pillow over a great song and it's still going to be a great song. still going to be a great song. What 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 are the factors that make it so? I don't know. I really I really don't know if I know the answer to that. Uh, there's something in the chord progression that's magical. When it when it works, it works. There's something in the melody and who's singing it, the tone of their voice. It has to go through the proper emotional. You know, every 16 bars, something has to happen. You know, it's, that's my rule anyway. Got to like, feel every, this artist's personality. Yeah, I don't like linear songs. Yeah. People sometimes think that that's what I'm looking for because I always talk about choruses mm-hmm. and big hooks. Yeah. The hook could be, you know, the the synthesizer line. The hook could be the guitar riff. The cowbell. The co- yeah. exactly. <laughs> yeah. You know, the hook could be anything that hooks you. You know, right. um, it's just a feeling that I got listening to music as a kid. So what I really do is I I remember the feeling that I I had when I listened to Wait a Minute, Mr. Postman. Or if it was under the boardwalk. Under the boardwalk. Out of the sun. Under the boardwalk. We'll be having some fun. Under the boardwalk. People walking above. Under the boardwalk. We'll be making love. Under the boardwalk. Boardwalk. So what I look for in music is to still get that feeling, even though it's a different era, different generation, different kind of music. Yeah. It's still the feeling has to be the same. We'll hear more from record exec L.A. Reid in just a minute on sound opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. He tells us about dropping Lady Gaga and what would have happened to Michael Jackson's career if he'd lived.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRogatis, and that blast from the past is I'm Your Baby Tonight, a big hit for Whitney Houston in 1990. It was written and produced by Babyface and our guest today, Antonio L.A. Reed. He got his start as a musician with Babyface, then became a songwriter-producer, and finally ended up behind the scenes as a music exec at Arista Records, LaFace, Def Jam, and now Epic. And along the way, you probably recognize him from The X Factor in a very public breakup with his ex-wife, the performer and TLC manager, Pebbles. I love the story. You hear the Megan Trainer demo for All About That Bass. Right. And you say, that's a hit. We're just put out this demo. Right. It can't get any better. Yeah, it was something. Paul Pontius, who's my A&R man, who's incredible, he brings it in to a meeting. And I said, wait a minute, play it again. He plays it again. Play it again. <laughs> That's a hit. Play it again. I said, who is that? Yeah, it's pretty clear. I ain't no size two. But I can shake it, shake it like I'm supposed to do. Because I got that boom, boom that all the boys chase. All the right junk in all the right places. And he says, it's a songwriter from Nashville, right? I said, you have to bring her in. You have to. I guess I have to see who this is. And he brings her in. She comes in with a ukulele, which I love, right? <laughs> and she does the song on the ukulele in front of me. And it's still a hit, even on the ukulele. No drums, no nothing. We signed her. And then she said, okay, now I'm going to go and mix it. I said, no, you're not. You're not touching this song. I want it just like it is. Just give me the demo. Don't touch it. And we put it out, and it worked. I felt smart for the first time in like three or four years. That's a good day at the office. <laughs> it was a good day That's at the awesome. office, yeah. Because you know I'm all about that bass, about that bass, no trouble. I'm all about that bass, about that bass, no trouble. I'm all about that bass, about that bass, no trouble. I'm all about that bass, about that bass. Well, that Megan Trainer story, you had to see it. You, you had to... You wanted that person in the room with you yes. performing that song. And there's a great segment in the book where you're talking about the Usher audition right. in the same kind of way, that that was the moment when you realized this guy's going to have a career, which he ended up obviously having. But you saw him when he was, what, 14 years old, right? He was 14, right? yeah. yeah. And, and he was, I loved his confidence. Like, those personalities really matter to me. By the way, I think that's pop also. Like, I, even my choice of personality is very pop. But he came in and he had so much confidence. He seemed almost too self-assured to be 14 years old mm. and way too seductive to the girls that were in the room. Way too, <laughs> like, where did you get that from at 14? <laughs> and his mom was there, so it was very clear that he'd been well-raised. And he's generally a good kid, too, you know. But he had this gear. He, went into, he shifted into this gear, and all of a sudden he was like... Mr. Sexy Man and, 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 and charming and charismatic, that became the gold standard for an audition for me. So after Usher's audition, I've requested an audition from any artist that I really like, with rare exception. There's been like two exceptions where I signed talent that I didn't want them to audition, and they were both rappers. One yeah. of them was Future, and he came in, and I was like, he's way too cool. I don't even want him to blow it. 
the way he looks sitting right there in this <laughs> chair and the way these records are sounding is good enough for me. Mm-hmm. And the other was Rick Ross, also a rapper. Yeah. Right. And same thing. I was like, this guy is so cool. Like, don't blow it. All you could do is go downhill from here, right? <laughs> so just let's leave it where it is, you know? Right. You're listening to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Codd with Jim DeRigatis. We're here with Antonio L.A. Reed, the chairman and CEO of Epic Records, and a, a man who has made a ton of great records, written a ton of great hits. One of the hits that wasn't, and you talk about these sort of mature beyond their years performers, Michael Jackson. Right. Another guy who was just, you know, killing people in executive suites when he was a kid. Right. Like, this kid seems like he's 20 years older. You, you met, obviously, Michael when he was in his prime. Right. Uh, right around the Dangerous Session. Exactly. Uh, you and, and, and Babyface, the hottest songwriting team in the world right now, working yeah. with uh, one of the greatest performers in the world, and here was a match made in heaven, uh, supposedly, right? How did, yeah. that, how did that work out for you? It didn't. You know, I mean, the relationship worked out. Meeting Michael Jackson and spending time with him and talking to him was all fascinating. But when we started to write, it didn't work. And I think it was because we changed the way we did things. Like, we didn't actually write our songs in the studio. We wrote our songs at home. Mm. And all of a sudden, Michael uh, sequesters us in the studio for three straight weeks, (laughs) right? And says, okay, let's write for me. Produce the genius now, please. Right. And it didn't work. Mm-hmm. It didn't work. We were trying so hard. We were coming up with like funky beats and bass lines and riffs. But we just, it wasn't, it wasn't, we were trying too hard to do a Michael Jackson record. Mm. And it just didn't work out at all. And um, yet you won his respect. He calls you yeah. Mr. President yeah. <laughs> whenever he would see you after that. Because so he asked me what I wanted to do. The first thing he ever asked me when he and I were alone privately he said, what do you see for yourself in the next 10 years? And I said, I want to be the head of a record label. I love the idea. And he says, I think he says, like Walter Yetnikoff, because Walter was the guy at CBS. CBS at the time. I said, yes. He says, like Tommy Mottola? He's like, yeah, I like that. <laughs> and then every time I saw him after that, he says, Mr. President. It was the <laughs> sweetest thing in the world. That's, that's great. Before we leave Michael Jackson, the way the career ended, you know, and obviously his life, and uh, uh, so tragic at the end. What could have been, in terms of a third act for Michael Jackson? It it really was tragic. I still struggle with it because I I became a, a real fan. I was always a fan, but because we knew each other, you know, I felt felt close. I won't go as far as to say we were friends. He didn't call me every day. He didn't say let's go to a movie or go watch you know a baseball game, but but we were very close as people are in the industry. What could have been the next act? This is gonna get me in a lot of trouble, but I'm gonna tell you the truth. I'm gonna tell you what I really think. I think that he was done. Mm. I think the work was done. And I think he knew the work was done, right? Because we had a meeting once and he says, I don't need another hit. It's not that I need another big hit. If I can't do something that truly changes the world, Mm. then I'm not doing anything meaningful. Mm. You don't say that unless you're done having hits. Great artists have a window, a window when it's their moment, right? 
And while it's their moment, they have to stuff as much stuff through that window as they can because mm. it closes. And I don't care if you're Stevie Wonder, who I regard as a god, or if you're Paul McCartney. When the window closes, that's kind of it. At that point, you're a performer, and you can go and you can work the rest of your life. But you won't have hits because that hit-making window is not infinite. And I think that for Michael, it was done, and he was done. Mm. You're blowing my mind, L.A., because you sounded more like a, a rock critic. Well, you know, some artists run out of things to say. Yeah, you do. What you're saying, though, is, is interesting because I always thought Michael held himself to this impossible standard. Like, I've right. got to sell 35 million records like I did with Thriller. Right. And if I don't do that, I'm a failure. You can't possibly do that, Michael. Right. Like you said, there's this little narrow window. You'll never do it again. You're, you're setting yourself up to fail. And it was interesting what, you know, there's a bit in your book that I thought was really interesting, your relationship with Jay-Z. And I didn't expect it to be coming from this guy giving you that advice. Right. But paraphrasing, basically saying there's another element to music besides hits. Right. There's, there's a socially conscious element to it that is also equally important. Right. As a record executive, you're all about, you're supposed to have hits. You're supposed to, you know, yes. pay your... Pay your uh, Pro, have your profit statements at the, at the end of each quarter, right. and that's based on hits. How do you reconcile that? Maybe Michael could have had a career if he thought, hey, I can do good work here. It just doesn't necessarily have to be top 10 stuff. Yeah, it's very true, but but again, you're right. He didn't see himself as that guy. He saw himself as, you know, the gold standard for him was those crazy numbers that we'll likely never see again. So for him, he peaked. But Jay-Z's conversations with me were eye-opening because it was something I always knew. I mean, I didn't grow up listening to only hit records. I grew up listening to things that I thought were just great. You know, I'm a jazz fusion guy, right? That had nothing to do with hits. Yeah. You know, listening to Return to Forever, that had nothing to do with hits. Or, or listening to Jaco Pastorius and Weather Report, that was just great musicianship and really intricate arrangements. So I knew this stuff, but... I didn't know it as a record man. As a record man, it was about that three minute, 30 second hit. Mm. And that's our life. And getting it on the radio, and not just getting it on urban radio, but getting it on top 40 radio, and getting it into the top 10 was how you sell millions of records. There's also the long-term view. I mean, even with an artist like Usher who had hits, right? it wasn't until a decade in that he had this mega-selling record. Exactly. And it's almost like that is a lo lost concept, I feel, in a lot of ways. Like an artist has got a hit right away now because right. of the way the churn cycle of social media and, you know, Internet. This is a great thing on Tuesday, but on Thursday we've already moved on to the next thing. How do you reconcile yeah. that long-term view to allow an artist to sort of develop and find their voice and, and have that right. true achievement a decade plus yeah. into their career Judas with, Priest. with that? Judas Priest, 40 years in yeah. right? Yeah. That's right. I kind of look at the artist's commitment to their career, right? I've never been able to say that if I sign an artist that they're going to have a 10, 15, 20 year. I've never been able to pick that. I don't know if anybody can really pick that. But what I can detect is their commitment to continuing to grow. And if they have the commitment to grow and they don't start putting all of those like 
really silly idiosyncrasies into their life, you know, and they concentrate on just continuing to grow. They can have a long career. But I never, I swear, I never, every time I've tried to say, okay, this is the artist that's going to have the long career, I've been wrong every single time, you know. <laughs> I had an artist, uh, Tony Rich. Oh, yeah. He had an album called The Tony Rich yeah. Project. I thought it was really funny. It was artful. It was really, really strong. And I would have bet a 20-year career when I heard his first single. I would have bet. And the second album came, and he was pretending to be himself. Mm. I was like, damn, already this guy's pretending. He's emulating himself. Right. And that was the beginning of the end. And Usher, I almost dropped him when he was 14 because 15, he went through puberty, and his voice kind of went mm. away. And I was like, okay, this is over. And he's got a 20-year career. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. So I, I can't call it. Well, that, that crazy lady with the weird costumes, what's her name? Oh, yeah, Lady Gaga. Her. She turned out to do pretty okay, too. <laughs> She's doing pretty took good. Took a pass on her. Yeah, I did. I, I signed her, so I'm proud of that. I'm proud that I gave her her first recording contract. I'm not so proud that I took it away. It was really kind of funny, you know, because when she came in, she played piano. She was the real deal. I mean, yeah. she played that piano. She didn't do the songs that she became famous for. She was doing songs that felt like like my favorites. They felt like Elton. They felt like Billy Joel. They didn't need a drum track. They didn't need a, they didn't need a loop or a sample. They were just chords and her singing and it, it was, was all there. great. And somehow between that time and dropping her, I lost confidence in her. I saw her the other night. I usually see her and she's like really warm and friendly. I saw her the other night and she just looked at me and just, <laughs> she gave me nothing. Well, she was getting ready to channel David Bowie. But she was channeling Bowie because yeah, yeah. she does go into character. Yeah. But for one moment there, I was like, I was right. I was right. I wanted to be right so badly. Yeah. And when Just Dance came out and it was on the chart, it was on the Canadian dance chart. I was like, see, I was right. That's just a Canadian dance chart. That doesn't count. And then it crossed over, and I look on the Hot 100, and it goes up, 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 and up. And then it's number one. I was like, yeah. I made the big mistake. You're listening to Sound Opinions with our guest, music producer and executive, L.A. Reid. L.A., let's talk about Kanye West. You were chairman and CEO of Epic Records from 2004 to 2011, so you really worked with Kanye from the beginning of his career through six of his albums, from College Dropout to Watch the Throne with Jay-Z. Yes. My first encounter with Kanye was he came to the office when Lupe Fiasco came to audition for me. Kanye was with him. I didn't know he was Kanye. He was a producer, but I wasn't familiar with him. And when he left, my A&R guy says to me, that guy Kanye West is thinking about being an artist also. And I was like, really? You mean he left the room without (laughs) bothering you? He didn't even bother me. That is not the Kanye we know. He was there to support Lupe, but I didn't know him, and I didn't know that he was interested in being a recording artist. So I I didn't have any sense of whether he could or couldn't. 
and he left. But I went to Island Def Jam, and I ran into him at the Grammys. It was the year that Outkast won Album of the Year for the Speaker Box Love Below. And Kanye came up to me, and he says, I know you'll get me because you get them. And I look forward to working with you. And at that point, he had one single out. And I think it was called Slow Jams with Twister and Jamie Foxx. Right, right, yeah. I loved his music. I loved that song, and he was funny in the song. He had this line, he said, I got a light-skinned friend, looks like Michael Jackson. Got a dark-skinned friend, looks like Michael Jackson. And to me, like, that was funny. That was funny to me. I was like, well, this guy is funny, right? When she know they got a light-skinned friend, look like Michael Jackson. Got a dark-skinned friend, look like Michael Jackson. Throughout the process, I always encouraged him um, maybe I wasn't right to encourage it, but I always encouraged them to uh, don't apologize. That's not rock. That's not rock and roll. You don't yeah. apologize. <laughs> if, you, if you throw a TV out of a window, you throw a TV out of a window. You don't right. say, oh, my God, I'm so sorry I did that. You know, it's just not the attitude. So I, was, I always encouraged this attitude in him. Yeah. And whenever I talked to him, I always said, you know, just be a rock star. Just be a rock star. Own it. Own it. And I still think that he's one of the most talented people that I've ever met in my life. And those albums, they stand up. Yeah. They will. St my guess is that they'll stand up for the next 20 years or better, right? I'll put on the executive hat, though, because the thing that kills Greg and I as fans of his work is it seems to be the public persona has almost made it impossible for many people to hear the brilliance of the music. Yeah. And that's that's so sad. Now, now, certainly, he's not the only artist that ever happened to. Right. John Lennon ticked right. off a whole universe full of people. You know, <laughs> we're bigger than Jesus. Jesus and right, then, right. you know, what's he doing in bed? And what's this Yoko woman, right? Right. But he was a Beatle, so we forgave him, right? Did we forgive him because he was a Beatle? Did we forgive him because he passed away? I don't, yeah, that's true. He's assassinated, so it's easy to forgive. He's a saint now, right? Right, he's a saint, right. I don't know. You know, but but it bothers me that all the noise uh, uh, stops people from hearing the, yeah. the music. Yeah, I I don't I don't disagree with that. Lately, lately I I I've had issue with it. Like I've wanted to. I don't talk to Kanye anymore. I talked to him a lot when we worked together. A few times afterwards, and now the years have passed, and I I don't speak to him that often. I would like to just say dial it back, because you 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 are interrupting greatness. Mm. You are channeling. It's not just it's it, you think it's all you. It's not you. Yeah. You're channeling, you know, and you are receiving this gift, and you are passing this gift on to the world. Be quiet and let it happen. Mm -hmm. The whole notion of him being able to take advice from people who will tell him no, or you're not right. doing. Maybe you ought to rethink this a little bit. Right. You know, if I were to psychoanalyze Kanye from right. afar, because I knew him pretty well once, and his right. mom I knew pretty well as well, and I think ever since his mom died. Uh, Donda, I don't think it's been the same for him. I think he's kind of slowly kind of drifted in, in a way that right. doesn't allow in those voices that can really guide him in any way. You know? But I've never gotten that impression. It's really interesting. 
I've never gotten the impression that Kanye does not listen to people. Mm-hmm. I've never gotten that impression. As a matter of fact, when he's making the records, there are people around. There are artists around. There are other rappers around. There are musicians around. And it's so collaborative. He's the ultimate uh, decision maker, but it's so collaborative. And if somebody challenges him, says that one line, I don't know, he'll go back and rewrite that line, yeah. right? So he he takes advice, or even even if it's um, his what he wears, and he's a fashion designer, you know, successful one now. But he'll still, if somebody says I'm not sure, you know, he'll rethink it. So I've never known him to be a guy that do it, wouldn't take advice. In a private setting, he was always humble. In a private setting, he was always respectful and wanted to know and listened, not only to me, but whoever was in the room. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a big theme of this conversation, L.A., is listening. Uh, you as a listener of music yes. and being able to say, here's something that's not working or here's what I like. And in the same way, your ability to listen to the opinion and advice of other people uh, the book is strewn with examples of you maybe missing something and somebody saying, you ought to take another look at yes. so-and-so. Uh, the Beyonce story with Rihanna comes to mind. Yeah, yeah, that was interesting. I honestly think that one's taken a little bit out of context because Rihanna was incredible to me, and I saw it. It was at that very moment, at the showcase that we're talking about. It was a Def Jam showcase, and Rihanna... Neo, Tierra Marie, and a group called Black Butterfly. And they all they all did a showcase for us. We knew Rihanna was a hit, mm-hmm. but we didn't know she was a megastar, right? And Beyonce just simply says, that girl right there, she's a beast. And she turned her head. She <laughs> wasn't a long conversation. Wow. <laughs> but it was enough for me. Yeah. And I went to Jay-Z and I said, Beyonce just said that girl's a beast and he looked at me and we both looked at Rihanna (laughs) yeah yeah the queen knows the queen she (laughs) knew the queen knew As the head of Epic Records, is the era of the major label done? Is it just now what Hollywood is? You only need the Hollywood studio to do Star Wars. Is Epic Records' role no longer the little idiosyncratic records, those lifetime career artists, the artists who are going to take 10 years to take off? Is it just about big hits and that's all record companies are needed for? No, um, I don't think the era is over. Two ways I want to answer it. One is that no, it's not over um, because these artists need the foot soldiers. Not when they're hot, but when they're cold. No, when you're hot, you know, you don't need anybody. It's when you have to redefine yourself or when you have to reestablish or re-image, that's when you need help, you know? And the other thing is, and you can only find that when you're amongst a group of people who care about you you know, or artists, for example. Like, I have a lot of artists and producers that collaborate with each other, you know, and I signed this artist, his name is Ricky Reed, from a band called Wallpaper. I signed him four years ago. They haven't had a hit yet, but he's producing hits for everybody on the label, right? But I signed him as a writer, 
But the artists are lucky I signed him, honestly. The artists that need him are lucky that I signed him. So, yeah, they didn't think they needed him when I signed them. They had their big hit, you know. Uh, but all of a sudden, when they were looking to re reinvent themselves, they look around and there's Ricky Reed, who is like a, a, a mad scientist, and is helping them reinvent themselves. The point I'm making is that it takes a cast of thousands sometimes for these careers to have a long life. My second answer is that too many people want the major record label to be over. And that concerns me. And so my question is why? Why did the major record label become the villain? Not to say that people don't have a bumpy ride with me or anybody else, but when I'm locked in with an artist, I, when I'm really locked in with them, they don't have a bad experience, right? And they don't walk away saying, I hate the major label. Now, when an artist doesn't have a hit, it's always the label's yeah, fault. Yeah, it's always, yeah, right. It's right. Never, <laughs> I, I think what I'm hearing, too, is, you know, the major labels are there for a band that is already sort of sure, has a certain sense of who it is right. and has an audience already. Like, don't go to the major label, unknown artist, and expect them to, like, do everything for you. It doesn't work. It doesn't work anymore, right? No. It's not the way it works. We amplify. Mm -hmm. You know, it's what we do. It's the same thing in radio, right? Amp radio amplifies, right? We the major label. We amplify. We don't create it. We know, I mean, I don't do it anymore. We're not writing your song for you, or we're not telling you, you know, wear blue as opposed to pink. Or It's not what we're doing, right? What we will do is surround you with a bunch of professionals to help you see your vision through. It's execution. That's really what our jobs are. And we have 200 foot soldiers at any given day that will go out and beat the pavement on your behalf. And I think that every artist needs that. And again, not always when they're hot. Like I have Bon Jovi for many years, right? Love Bon Jovi. I don't even know you guys, but I already know your opinion of Bon Jovi, right? <laughs> yeah. But, He's was, such a nice man, though. Right, nice right. man. I don't ever want to listen right. to him again. But I, he, major label mattered to him because he had already had his big hits and he wanted to remain relevant. So the major label mattered. Seen a song for the broken hearted. We've been talking to L.A. Reed, the uh, CEO of Epic Records and the author of Sing to Me, his new autobiography. L.A., thanks for, so much for coming in. I've enjoyed this so much. Thank you both for having me. It's my For more on L.A. Reed and to check out other conversations with producers and great behind-the-scenes music characters, visit soundopinions.org. And we want to hear from you. From TLC to Kanye West, what stands out to you in L.A.'s career? And what role do you think the major labels still serve? Call 888-859-1800. Coming up, Jim drops a coin in a Desert Island jukebox. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX.
I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. Remember, we were shipwrecked together. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. As often as possible on the show, we like to take a trip to the Desert Island Gym. It is still a little bit of winter in Chicago yeah. these days, so you're you're heading off to the Desert Island. I'm envious. What song are you going to play when you get there? Well, I got a twofer Desert Island pick, Greg. I'm going to talk about a great Desert Island movie and a great Desert Island song. First, the song. Second single from Tom Petty's debut album, 1977, American Girl. One of these songs that I believe all came from the drum part. It's got this great stop rhythm, propels the song forward, those chiming Rickenbacker guitars. And one of Tom Petty's, I think, greatest lyrics, she was an American girl, raised on promises, couldn't help thinking that there was a little more to life somewhere else. Mm -hmm. Now, been used in films excellently, twice, and, and many other times, but my two favorite, both by the same director, Jonathan Demme, Silence of the Lambs, and then a movie that came out last year that I just caught up with this weekend that I loved, Ricky and the Flash, about a, a nowhere bar band in California. It's led by an incredible actress, Meryl Streep. Meryl Streep is this aging rocker who delivers 100% before a crowd of 50 diehards in this bar week after week, living this life, and she sings American Girl, sang all of her own material. The band is pretty good. It's got some Neil Young veterans in it. It's got the great Bernie Worrell on Hammond organ, and it's got Rick Springfield on lead guitar. <laughs> and I just love this version of the song, and it takes on a whole new meaning here. In Silence of the Lambs and in general, I think it's about a young girl questioning her future. And here, in the hands of a 50-something, 60-something, Meryl Streep, it's about not wanting to give up on the dream of youth. Demi is a brilliant director in using music in films. Anyway, so this is a really weird pick, okay? But this is Meryl Streep playing Ricky with her band The Flash, covering a killer song, American Girl, on Sound Opinions.
That is American Girl, sung by Meryl Streep in Ricky and the Flash. Cool Jonathan Demme movie. Great song, of course. Greg, I'd love to hear what you think of the movie if you ever catch up with it. I'm queuing it up now, Jim. Thank you. What do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we are going to look at the intersection of the environment and music in honor of Earth Day with environmental journalist Bill McKibben. As always, Sound Opinions is produced by Robin Lynn, Evan Chung, Alex Claiborne, and our intern is Libby Gormley. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 91 myself, I can't comment on her judgment that all people born in the 80s have no taste in music. However, my favorite genres do include punk, grunge, shoegaze, new wave, and alternative rock, which she implied were talentless noise. What I love about music is that there are all different types that you can mix and match and that no person has the same exact taste. I adore the show and appreciate learning all about new and old music that I haven't been exposed to yet, and I love hearing your take on all of my favorites. Thank you. The winner of American Idol Season 15 is... Trent Harmon! Hi, my name's Lynn. I'm a nurse, and I used to work in the same day surgical center and it used to be that patients family members would be coming back asking when they could see their patient when they could see their patient 
And all of a sudden I noticed in the evening family members weren't coming back. They weren't caring about their patients. And I went out to the family waiting room and everyone is out there glued to the TV watching American Idol. Hello, this is Michelle from Las Vegas. I have to say that I am going to miss it. I cried when the show was over. We look forward to it every year, especially the auditions, because they were funny and entertaining. And the voice is good, so is America's Got Talent, but nothing can compare to American Idol. And we were very sad to see it end. And I hope they bring it back. Thank you. Bye-bye. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.